Hey, Internet. Welcome to The Stakes, MTV's relentlessly political podcast. I'm Holly Anderson, Director of News and Politics for MTV News, coming to you from our Los Angeles studio. Coming up on the show today, a poem about self-care, the relationship between college sports culture and how sexual assault against women is silenced, and we'll relive the trauma of the summer's political conventions for a look at what they tell us about the upcoming election. But first... A few weeks ago, we reported on this show on a national prison strike that began on September 9th, and it's still going, according to the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. When we spoke to prisoners and asked what they're trying to achieve, they said to change or even get rid of the 13th Amendment. To refresh your memories, here's the full text of said amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Note the clause that says except as a punishment for crime. That clause is what allows for forced work by prisoners. Filmmaker Ava DuVernay is releasing a Netflix documentary special today. It's called 13th, and it's about how this amendment has led to a culture of mass incarceration across the country. Here's a clip from 13th talking about the creation of super predators. In the mid-1990s, it was a term applied almost exclusively to black boys and men in cities destined for a life of ultraviolence, or at least that's what a few criminologists said, and the media, politicians, and yes, even then First Lady Hillary Clinton took the bait. Chances are you could run into a kid waiting to relieve you of your purse or wallet. Every media outlet in the country thinks I'm less than human. I began to hear the word super predator as if that was my name. Super predator. Predator. Super predator. Super predators. End quote. That's the word they use to describe this generation. And it was very, very effective. Experts call them super predators. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. Animals, beasts that needed to be controlled. Our own Jamil Smith sat down with DuVernay to talk about her film and mass incarceration. Tell me, Ava, when did you start thinking about mass incarceration as a systemic problem? I guess in college. I mean, truly, I I had experienced um, uh, growing up in Compton. I uh, grew up around a very heavy police presence um, in a neighborhood where... When I saw a cop, I didn't think of safety. Um, I thought of quite the opposite. And so I was around issues of criminal justice just as a child, Um, knew people who were interacting with uh, the prison system, either on parole, probation. So it's always kind of been around. And when I went to UCLA as an African-American history major, um, I... um, was able to give that historical and cultural context, have some context for it. So it's always been at the forefront of my mind. And when Netflix approached me and offered me the opportunity to make a documentary about anything I wanted, this is what I chose. Well, we're talking on the day after 18-year-old Carnell Snell Jr. was shot and killed by police in South Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, I bring that up not just because that's your part of the world, but also because you essentially began your filmmaking career by making a documentary there. Um, You could made another drama you could have made something for tv film about this subject why choose this form 
You mean the documentary form? Is that the question? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. The first film I ever made was documentary, so I feel like I'm returning to my first love. You know, I think that there's a deep dive that you can do in documentary uh, that you can't do in narrative films. You know, I have I'm mm. I'm, I'm restricted by certain you know. Uh, laws of physics in narrative <laughs> filmmaking you know in documentary filmmaking much like animation anything can happen you know I can pull from footage I can cut that footage in whatever way I need I can move back backwards and forward in time um, and I don't um, you know necessarily rely on the actor to approximate um, what happened I can actually show you what happened so yeah. in this case, this is something that we, I felt this topic we need to confront um, with very clear eyes and there was no way to do it um, other than to, to show you what happened and have first, first person analysis. Speaking of footage, you include uh, video with family permission of police killing black men, including Philando Castile, Eric Garner. Recently, I spoke with Bree Newsom, the activist mm-hmm. uh, who climbed the pole in in, in Charlotte, um, in Charleston. Uh, the to, flagpole, exactly. Let's, let's just, rephrase let's that. Be, let's <laughs> just be real clear. Yes. The sister climbed the flagpole to <laughs> just <laughs> clean it up, Jamil. Yep, yep. I'm sorry, I forgot uh, that the man have a little bit of a double entendre. Uh, I spoke with Bree Newsom last week. Um, she reminded me that white people used to hold lynching picnics and trade postcards depicting lynchings. Did some people seeing those images, do you feel like, lead to change? And who do you think is changing their mind now when they're seeing these videos? I mean, do you think that they are having a, a positive societal effect? Yeah, I mean, we debate this in the documentary, whether or not it's healthy to view uh, images of murders uh, repeatedly of black men. Uh, Issues of self-care are in the conversation as it relates to black people, of all people, seeing this kind of murders. And so we play that out in the documentary. But I tend to side on the, um, um, with the opinion of Mamie Till, uh, a woman who Mm -hmm. lost her son Emmett um, uh, to violent hands. and uh, and racism and who and who you know declared that she would uh demand that people bear witness to that murder and to see uh what racism had done to her son and that sparked change now that was one incident we're seeing that in that incident on tape every week and so there is something to be said about what is too much and how much can we take? And at one point do we become, what point do we become desensitized? What point does it become unhealthy? Um, that's an ongoing conversation, but we chose in the documentary to ask families, even though those families do not have ownership of that footage, right? The footage is, mm-hmm. is, is, is public domain. In some instances, it is the, the rights holder is the person who took the footage, whether that be the police department with body cam footage, whether that be the, um, the, the person who owns the liquor store who had the videotape running. Right. Uh, it is not the family's footage. The last moments of their loved one's life and their loved one losing their life they don't own that. They don't control its use. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we just couldn't, um, I couldn't imagine putting it in and not asking emotional permission. It wasn't legal permission because we didn't have to ask. Right. Emotional permission. Do you want this? Um, about seven families said no. If you're going to give me the choice, no one's giving me the choice, no. Mm. Um, but some did. And and, uh, and so that's in. And folks, I guess it's a, a bit of a... Uh, a question that I hope folks think about more more deeply. You started 13th as a look at mass incarceration in the present day. And then you had voices like Michelle Alexander, Jelani Cobb, Brian Stevenson, give voice to why the 13th Amendment has been so poisonous to America. 
when did it become clear as you're going through the filmmaking process how this isn't just about what's happening today? It's what happened, you know, in slavery. Sure. Um, no, as we were, the, the initial focus was in- incarceration as industry, mm-hmm. people making money off prisons in the present day. But as we started to get in and unpack that story, it became really apparent, oh, I know what the historical context is, me, Ava, and I know how this affects the current day. But if you don't know that, then the current day stuff doesn't echo. It doesn't have any any vibration to it. So it became really clear that we couldn't tell the story of now without telling the story of what had been. Right. And, um, and so from there, we started to build... Uh, build a broader scope for the film. The 13th Amendment says that no one in this country shall be held as a slave, except if you're a criminal. Except. So there's a lot of quote-unquote criminals in prison who are being made to work against their will. I mean, we really need to think about prison. Prison is a place you go because you quote-unquote have done something wrong. You're supposed to sit there and do your time. That's your punishment for having done something wrong. It doesn't mean that we're not going to feed you properly. We're not going to make sure that if you're sick, you're not taken care of. It doesn't mean that you're going to be ostracized and kind of isolated from your family. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't mean that you're going to have to pay us to punish you, right? Right. Pay us to punish you, Right. right, by exorbitant phone rates and exorbitant commissary goods and just what it takes to live, what it takes to wash yourself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? What it takes to take care of yourself as a human being. You will pay us for that as we make money off of you sitting there. That's nuts. That's what this country does. Mm -hmm. Um, We have five, we are 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, We are inhumane as a country in our treatment of incarcerated people. And it is easy for us to do so because they're locked away somewhere and we don't see them. What we're trying to do with this film is say, in this case, silence is consent. Right. right? In this case, after you know all that we tell you, if you remain silent, you are saying it's okay. Are you a prison abolitionist then? Yes. Why is that? Well, because the system is broken. It's not going to be fixed with tape and band-aids. Mm-hmm. You can't go over and nail up that side of it and hope it holds up. <laughs> right. you got to tear that house down and start again. It needs to be dismantled and started again. So I am with abolishing prison as we know it today mm-hmm. and working together to come up with a more humane, more dignified, more fiscally responsible, um, more um, just practical, sensitive way to um, render criminal justice. All over the, the world, people in all nations are doing really interesting things mm-hmm. to reform, to rede- with lower with lower incarceration rates. Right. I mean, the main thing to know is everyone in prison right now should not be in prison. They're there under laws that have since since been to- since been tossed out. Mm. Right? Yeah. You're sitting there doing time on a law that doesn't even exist anymore. You're sitting there doing time on laws that our president, who enacted those laws, says, "Oops." made a mistake sorry Mm. about that yeah but never changed the law so you're still sitting there you're sitting there in prison because you didn't have enough money to get out you're sitting there in prison because you never went to trial because 97 percent of the people in prison never saw a trial they plea bargained Mm -hmm. so this idea that prison is a place where bad people go is really really pedestrian and if you're a forward-thinking person you need to understand what it is what it's doing and help work to get out of it I mean, when you hear Bill Clinton apologize for the 94 crime bill, even if it's undone, I mean, the, the, the proposition that 
you'd let go all those people who were sentenced under that crime bill. I just don't know if there's that kind of political courage out here right now. Oh, no, I don't think there is. You know, there's a there's a lot of, um, you know, ass covering going on and uh, and folks just doing what they need to do uh, to move on to the next moment, as opposed to, you know, substantive, um, deeply rooted problem solving, Um, you know, particularly between the two candidates that we're looking at. I see more Twitter beef than I see real um, solutions um, being presented. And, you know, it's our fault as a public because we're allowing it to happen. But we are almost a month away from making a decision as citizens who will be our representative to the world, who will, quote, unquote, lead us. Somebody needs to start asking some real questions. I, you know, blame the press quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I think that the coverage of the bullshit has been um, um, part of what has created the smokescreen. You know, we're worried more about, you know, nonsense. I mean, we're a month away. One of these people is going to be the president of the United States. Like, shouldn't we start to tune into that more than who's awake at three in the morning? You know, sit in, sit in Twitter. That's why it's being done. This is all distraction. Right. You know, I want to focus on this this beauty queen so you don't ask me questions about you know international policy and everybody's <laughs> falling for it and um it's it's frightening it's like a, i feel like i'm in a horror movie um millennial voters who we spoke with um after the first debate at hofstra uh expressed a lot of those same reservations mm-hmm. about what's being discussed how it's being discussed you know they didn't live through the reagan era but they're oriented more towards social justice at their age than a lot of us were back in the 80s, early 90s. Why do you think back then we didn't have Black Lives Matter? I mean, we had crime in our, crime in our cities. We had police abuse. We had Rodney King. Why do you think that a, a movement didn't, you know, catalyze around that in the same way that we see today? Oh, gosh. Hard to say. I mean, I think I remember being, you know, uh, the, the, there being quite a bit of dissent around that time. I remember being in college in 1990 um, and uh, in her college in 1990. And, uh, you know, all we thought about was Public Enemy and X-Clan and Amnesty <laughs> International and, you know, following what was happening in New York City with with um, police shootings uh, even then, mm-hmm. um, with police aggression, certainly in my community in South Central L.A., in um, it was forefront of my mind, uh, police interactions, criminal justice issues. Um, you know, was it something that the media had glommed onto? You know, was it, did it have a name, a slogan, a, a handle that seemed to make it feel like one thing? No. But dissent in the black community has always been there. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, there's a gear shift now where we're kind of at a, a different level of awareness about it, a different level of engagement. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I can't say why was it not happening there, because I, I recall it happening. Just maybe, yeah. you know, didn't have didn't have a, a name. I feel like the, the visibility of the protest, I think, is also a big factor. People seeing that protest on screen, you know. Yeah, be, but I think, but, but 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 to suggest that why was there not a movement at that time suggests that protests weren't happening. Mm-hmm. Protests were happening, but you, if you were protesting in L.A., which we were, right. you didn't see it in New York because the media wasn't covering it in New York, and I didn't have a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed to show you, right? right. And I didn't have text. I couldn't email you. I had to fax you. 
Um, and then what did we do back then? I mean, my God, what did we do? How did we live? Skywriting? What, the, yeah, what, 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 what did we do? I lived through the time and I really can't remember how I, I even communicated with you. <laughs> Letter <laughs> so, writing, you know. This is a conversation with old people. This is Morse MTV. Code. And it, yeah, Morse code. That's what we use. Morse code. Um, let me talk about your use of hip hop in the film. I want to get an idea of how you would classify its role in the story that you're trying to tell. Um, yeah, I mean, in the film, we have these musical, musical interludes that, that break up the sections. And the idea about it was really to um, um, highlight black musical tradition that has always uh, expressed a voice of dissent from Nina Simone to Nas, you know, and everything in between. Black artists have continuously addressed this issue in their art. Ava, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That was filmmaker Ava DuVernay speaking with MTV News senior national correspondent Jamil Smith. You can watch her documentary, 13th, on Netflix, starting today. Over the summer, we sent teams to the Republican and Democratic National Conventions in Cleveland and Philadelphia. They spent two blistering weeks listening to both parties talk about their plans, observing the crowds, and taking in the malaise. MTV political writer Caleb Horton wrote about his experience in a piece called How I Spent My Summer Vacation, Communists, Corn Dogs, and Total Immersion in the Most Exhausting Presidential Election in Modern History. It's a long one, and can I just say as the person who's read it maybe more than Caleb has at this point, take the time. It's well worth it. Here's Caleb now in conversation with MTV senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox to reflect on their summer in the frying pan. Now, you have a moment in your piece that sort of surprised me, where you talk about listening to Trump's speech and actually kind of being caught up in it for a moment. Mm. Yeah, my brothers both do unloads at a uh, big box store and they're night shift people and they don't really know any Democrats. I didn't grow up knowing any Democrats. And Donald Trump really does talk in a way that makes sense to people like that. And the way that he talks makes sense to me. I, I hear that tone of voice a lot. And there's something, I don't want to say comfortable about it, but there's something homey about it. You know, that doesn't mean I have a good home or that they have a good home environment, you know, culturally, but it's just very familiar. And I think that familiarity is what I was really responding to for a second. And then it disappeared as quickly as it showed Mm up. But do you think you can sort of understand, like, why people flock to him the way that they do? You have a better understanding of that now? I think I do. And it's just... You can get, there's so many small towns in this country where you can see the evidence of big manufacturing hubs or you can see economies that used to be there. We left the wreckage behind. We didn't delete it. Just empty freight yards and empty factories. And I spent a while in Shasta County and there's, there's tiny little traces. Shasta County used to be a big lumber area and there's not lumber there anymore. Mm-hmm. My brothers would love to work in lumber. They would love to do manufacturing or something like that. All they do is unload stuff for a store. They're not involved in the making of things anymore. And the idea of making things is kind of exciting when you're in a small town like that. It makes you feel like you're part of something. There's this alienation that sets in when you don't feel like you're part of something anymore. 
Yeah, maybe a, a key word in the Make America Great Again slogan that we haven't really sort of thought about is the make part, right? Mm -hmm. That it's about making things as much as it is about this nostalgia for a past. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't get it back. That's part, of the, <laughs> that's part of the great lie of Donald Trump is that he can just create the 1950s again. It can't be done. Well, it can't be done. And also because, I mean, the other thing that he does is he, he scapegoats a very specific set of people, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's not just like make America great again. He, tell, he suggests to his followers whom is to blame for it not being great. Which is the thing mm -hmm. that I found the most frightening about Cleveland. Well, I'm just glad I was able to put this sentence in the article that his throat is an open grave. <laughs> I intend to continue saying that conversationally for a long time. His heart is full of That's, malice and his throat is an open grave. It's an insult to graves. Um, lots of good people <laughs> die. Um, I don't know what, what, <laughs> what you have against dead people. Um, <laughs> In speaking of Trump, like you do have a meditation at, at some a point in your piece about how one thing that's frightening about Trump is that he is carrying out his candidacy in such an unskilled way, in an mm -hmm. inept way, but that you can foresee a time when there's going to be another candidate that has the same message and the same set of you know, prescriptions dark prescriptions for the country, but is just a better candidate. Yeah, there's going to be a sleeker Trump. I don't know what it's going to look like, and I don't know necessarily who it's going to be, but Donald Trump has done some things with his campaign that worked, like rounding up all the various talk radio fringes. And, like, he kind of allows conspiracy theories, the dark conspiracy theories, without necessarily endorsing them, but he legitimizes them. Mm-hmm in a way that makes people feel like he, he kind of can belong to every conspiracy theory by not being too much in the pocket of one or the other. <laughs> and some conspiracy theories he outright endorses. I mean, that's true too. <laughs> so and then he'll unendorse them. Right. And then I feel like that gives conspiracy theorists hope that he's going to like, that he does believe some of it. The fact that he chooses some to highlight and then just refers to others. I mean, the fact I mean, that he allowed the the that he allowed the birther conspiracy to persist as long as it did is just appalling. It's that's such a nightmare. I it it just makes me sad. That's the bit. I'm getting to this point where I can't think about anything he says for very long without just getting too sad to engage anymore. Well, we'll try to keep going then. <laughs> you have to fight for it. It's a fight. Yeah, I was actually, so speaking of keeping going, actually, and, and you being too sad to think or speak, by the end of your article, you get to sort of a place, um, there is a wonderful cameo by a gentleman who is changing the trash cans in the Walmart parking lot, right? That's right, yeah. In a uh, low-key little suburb in uh, southern New Jersey. And he's a, he, if there's a hero in your piece, I think it's probably him. I, when I was talking to that guy, I was very aware immediately that it was the best interview I had probably done in mm -hmm. all of those two weeks. And I talked to, I, I can countless people. Mm -hmm. He was and, just very, very grounded. And what I liked about the guy was that he had kind of, he was, he had his political opinions or whatever, but he just. But he was more morally centered. I think we 
get rid of the we, we don't talk about politics through a moral framework often enough it's an easy thing to lose sight of like maintaining a sense of personal morality and having an ethic for how you live every day and just how you treat your neighbor and i don't want to give up too much of what this guy said but um i mean he had a definite opinion about who he supported i was sort of surprised that by the end of your piece you don't actually come out i think and talk about who it is that you support i didn't want to put i wanted to take myself out of the story as much as i could i think the answer suggests itself i i was trying to get away from loudness I think there's mm -hmm. so much loudness in this election, and I was just trying to dial it back and get mm -hmm. back on the ground somewhere. Don Donald Trump is so loud, and he's so mean, and his words are such poison, and it's constantly evolving. It's never even the same poison. It, from day to day, the lie is different, and it's always for ratings, and it's always just to get as much attention as possible. And I, I think we need to dial it down and just sit and think and engage the world morally and think about how we treat our neighbors. And we need to think about local elections a lot. I don't think we can tie all this to the presidency. We, we overrate in how much a president is capable of doing sometimes. And we underrate how many people there are in the political process who don't have the glamor and don't have the constant attention of all the cameras. Caleb, thanks for talking with me. Yeah, thank you. That was MTV political writer Caleb Horton with MTV senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox. In a new book called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape, Investigative journalist Jessica Luther examines the way college sports culture treats sexual assault. Sports fans will appreciate the setup. Luther uses the term playbook to represent the systematic and often predictable approach to how universities and athletes respond when allegations of sexual assault are on the table. MTV Founders editor Julie Zeilinger spoke with Luther about her work. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us. I just finished your book um, and have obviously a lot of questions for you, but I'm, I'm just so glad that you wrote this book. Thank you. As someone who has covered sexual assault uh, on campuses before, um, and I think the general public has heard a lot about sexual assault on campuses, and many may have noticed that perpetrators in these cases are often athletes, but it seems that the mainstream media has paid little concerted attention to the intersection of sexual assault and sports culture. So how did you come to write about this? It was on my radar. In the summer of 2013, there were two pretty big cases. One involved four football players at the university, or at Vanderbilt University, and then three football players at Navy. And I remember at the time just sort of Everyone in sports media was very interested in whether or not a famous college quarterback had paid, been paid for his autograph. And I just remember this dissonance, like thinking, how can we not be talking about the fact that seven players at two big programs are in trouble for the same kind of violence off the field? And then in November 2013, that's when Florida State quarterback, Jameis Winston, it came out in the media that he had been under an investigation for 11 months at that point for sexual assault and that has just never gone anywhere 
that the Tallahassee Police Department had never forwarded the case on to the state's attorney like they were supposed to do. There was a huge national story, but that was my alma mater. That was my football team that I cared so deeply for and I was paying very close attention to and I was a huge Jameis Winston fan and we were doing really well and it was very exciting. And then I started reading the media coverage once this news came out and I just didn't like how we were talking about it. I didn't like how it was being covered. And that's when I started to intervene uh, with my writing. Mm-hmm. And, and you take a unique approach to interrogating what is really a complex issue in this book, uh, namely through the rubrics of playbooks. Can you describe how and why you took this approach and what you think it ultimately reveals about this issue? Yeah, the book is definitely set up as, you know, teams have playbooks, the ways that when something happens, this is how we all react on the field to it in order to sort of win the game, right, to, to advance the ball. And one of the things I've, I'm always interested in is how we talk about things and why we talk about them in specific ways. And so a good friend of mine, Dan Solomon, uh, he and I have reported together on Baylor. I was talking to him at one point in the process of writing. I was struggling with the book and he said, well, you're so interested in, in how we talk about these things as patterns, the way that, you know, everyone sort of does the same thing over and over again. And because they do it, we don't pay attention to what's actually happening. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like a playbook. And I was like, oh, that's it. It is like a playbook. I think it's such a useful way to look at this because it really moves us away from viewing this as an individual problem, which we really like to do. We like to say this is on one person uh, and it's their problem. They're divorced from context. We, If we just talk about this one person and their behavior, then we can move on from it. And I really think what happens in the book through this kind of through this framework is that you see that it's actually a system and the adoption of these narratives make it so that we don't talk about what's actually happening and, you know, who it is that minimizing this problem, sometimes encouraging it, um, definitely ignoring it so that it continues to repeat. Mm -hmm. And and on that note of this being a systemic issue, you also talk about how those who control every aspect of the college sports industry, from the actual programs to the media that covers it and beyond, are almost entirely older, usually white men. Um, Can you explain what you found Mm -hmm. about how this influences the culture and practices that contribute to this normalization of violence? Yeah, I think most of the time when these cases break, especially with college football, which is you know, my focus, it's a, it's often a black man that we are talking about as the perpetrator of the violence because most college football players are black men. Um, and, and so we sort of go into an easy narrative in that case of like black men as criminals, which is very problematic given the history of this country. The other one is that we become obsessed with whether or not this woman is possibly lying. And can we nitpick her story and destroy it and prove that she's a liar? And therefore, we don't have to care about this individual case. And the reality, though, is that this this whole system that's built around college football to protect these players in order to keep them on the field, like you said, is controlled almost entirely by white men. And these men are making a bunch of money. You know, football coaches, college football coaches making them just 
you know, there are millions of dollars. They get bonuses if they make it into the later round, you know, bowl games, playoff games, win national championships. Um, they're financially invested in, in keeping these kids on the field. University presidents often make less than the coaches, so they're sort of deferring to them. And, of course, you know, the sports media is built around um, telling these kids stories and talking about them as athletes. And so all these white men, basically, the majority of them are really deeply invested in keeping these kids on the field. And so I think it's really important that we continue to recognize that, especially because most of the time the two individuals involved in these cases are not represented by, you know, it's black men and then women um, are not represented by the people actually controlling the system. Mm-hmm. And, and another element you sort of you focused on that as an outsider to this culture I hadn't really considered at all is also looking to the broader culture and the way players and women also are treated in the broader context of the program and on the campus. Yeah, I'm sort of obsessed with recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that's very interesting about you know the collegiate level in particular that's very different than say the professional level is that they don't pay these guys, and so in our for a capitalist American culture, one of the ways that you convince someone to come work for you is you pay them more, right? And they don't have, schools don't have the ability to do this because of all the rules around amateurism in college sports. And so they, they have different ways that they convince kids, you know, good coaches who are going to coach you to the NFL or to a national championship, incredible facilities, you know, some for some kids, it's a good education. And then there's this other element, which is that they often use women as enticements, they're sort of they're Im- implicitly and sometimes explicitly set up as the reward that you get when you come to campus as part of your big man on campus. Sometimes it's you know programs where it's literally women who walk them around campus when they come to visit. Um, sometimes have sex with them. There's also there's more innocuous versions of it where they'll Photoshop someone's face or the, the guy on the cover of like a people magazine arm in arm with say Beyonce, you know, the idea that like, if, if you come here, your future is that you will be famous and you'll have a woman on your arm. So clearly there are a lot of problems, but one of the things I appreciate most about this book is that it doesn't just explore these problems, but devotes a significant amount of space to posing solutions. Um, so I'm wondering, do you, do you see evidence that these solutions are being implemented and, and where do we go from here? Um, no, I don't yet see so much evidence. Um, you know, Baylor is interesting. There, you know, this is this is the big case right now, and out of Waco, Texas, and earlier this year, following you know an, an investigation into how the school handled reports of sexual violence, they actually ended up demoting the president, punishing the AD, so he he left the athletic director, and then firing the head football coach who is an incredibly good football coach and probably could have won the national championship this year. That was a big moment. Um, That is maybe evident. We'll see. I sort of, I'm so cynical (laughs) that it's hard for me to to say that, you know, it's changed significantly, but if it makes one coach sort of pause and, and wonder about his own responsibility and the culture that he's creating in his team, then for me, that's a win. And you know, I'm I'm hopeful, like, you know, we're having better conversations about consent. I start the entire 
last third of the book, the solution section on consent. I sort of think that's where we have to start. And I end it by saying we need to hire women mm-hmm. in all these spaces that are so full of men. You know, again, going back to thinking about in the recruitment process, sort of dehumanization of women, women as accessories in the sport. You know, we need more women in there. We need them in the locker room. We need them on the sidelines as authority figures. We need them administratively making decisions so that these kids can see them as full of human beings. I think for me, the big takeaway, the thing I hope people take away from the book is that it is systemic. It's so easy to focus on individual cases. And I mean, I do it in my work because that's how we talk about this is case by case. And one of the things I appreciate about being able to do the the book length treatment of this topic is you can really see that this is systemic that it's not one school it's not one player it's not one coach it's not one school that there's something going on in the way that college football is set up systemically that we need to be talking about more and that you know we need to be putting pressure on college football in general to do something about the way that it's set up so I hope that that's what people take away when they read the book. Yeah, and I'm sure this book will do a lot to reveal that and start these conversations. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having this conversation. That was MTV's own Julie Zeilinger talking to author Jessica Luther about her new book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. We'll close out our show today with a piece of poetry by MTV News writer and tireless social activism correspondent Marcus Ellsworth. This one is called A Memory of Self-Care Through an Afternoon with a Dear Friend. Sometimes you have to step back, pull away from the chaos and the struggle. It can be overwhelming. It can feel like every single day is a war with the world. She'd been feeling that way for a while. So she asked me to go with her off into the hills, only for a few hours, before dusk came to claim the day. She didn't want to go alone, in case the fight followed her on the road. In the car, we laughed and sang our way from the valley, but as we drew near to where she needed to be, we fell silent to the call of the foothills. We parked at a bend in the road and stepped out into the sun. The high grass buzzed and rustled with life. The green hills rolled in ever lower iterations back to the city where we live and fight each day. In the late summer haze, a change was in the air. Autumn was coming into the leaves, and my friend was coming into a new season for herself. Here was a woman I was only now beginning to know. A woman who had once been an old friend, with different clothes, a different name, different ways, but the same soul. I'd felt like the person she had been was always searching for something. I now felt the woman she was becoming would discover everything. I see the warrior in her now.
but fighting makes one weary. So she needed to run to the hills for an afternoon. We stood there, looking out over a valley where we knew a war was waiting. Against her and all the people who have claimed themselves in spite of the box on their birth certificates. But up there, it was just a valley. Up there, we were only two old friends taking in the wildflower perfume of a dying day. We were at peace. There were no probing looks from strangers, no ignorant comments to counter, no legislation to lobby against, no cause to champion. We only had to stand and breathe. Sometimes all you need is a space where you can stand and breathe and feel free. For MTV News, I'm Holly Anderson in Los Angeles, and those are the stakes. And we're not done with your tender ears just yet. Join Marcus and me again this Sunday night, following the second presidential debate, for another installment of our late-night series, Stakes After Dark, or SAD. Until then, take care of each other out there. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.